you're about to meet a couple of the greens, Nathan and Ann. I want to share a couple of uh, thoughts before you see what you're about to see. I want to share a, a little passage from Acts chapter 22 where Paul is speaking to the people of Jerusalem. And he's telling his story about how he came to faith in Christ. He says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that's appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, listen to what he said. He said, the God of our fathers appointed you, Saul, to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This picture of Paul where he saw the risen Lord. He's on the road to Damascus. He's blinded by this whole event. He sees Christ. Christ speaks to him. He's taught by a man named Ananias. Ananias gives him this charge. He says, the God of our fathers appointed you saw. We could say this to Anne. And the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Maybe not audible, but a strong impression of who Christ is. Seeing it and hearing it in the preached and taught word week by week. Seeing it and hearing it in the home of the Green family. You will be a witness for him to everyone of, who, of what you have seen, Anne, and heard. And now why do you wait and rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? We considered a few weeks ago this picture of baptism. It's so much more than an illustration. It's so much more than God's flannel graph of what he's done in salvation. And when someone steps into that pool by faith, like Anne today, and calls to God for the washing away of, his, of, our, of their sins, calling to God, Peter calls it an appeal to God for a good conscience. He says baptism is appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When someone steps in that pool and says, God, cleanse me of my sin, and God, I appeal to you for a good conscience to be square between me and you by the finished work of another, then that's more than an illustration. That's a faith event, and God shows up. And that's what, what we're about to see. That's what's about to happen. I'm going to turn it over to Ann's dad, Nathan. I'm Nathan Green, and this is my daughter Ann, as he said. Um, Ann and I have talked a little over the last month or so about what it means to believe in Christ and to, to follow him. Uh, a little over a week ago, she came to me and said that she, she does believe and that she'd like to be baptized, so that's why we're here today. Um, so, Ann, uh, are you trusting in Christ alone and his finished work to, for your salvation? Yes, sir. And do you have any hope at all outside of Christ and his work in your life? Yes, sir. Okay. It is my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. Let, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be a part of this in Anne's life. Uh, Lord, we just praise you for, for your faithfulness to us as a family and for blessing us the way that you have. Uh, we thank you for it. I pray that you would just continue to bless Anne, that you would continue to grow her faith and reveal yourself to her. And uh, pray that she would be true to the calling that you've placed on her life, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me as I find a scripture. And we'll read a, uh, another psalm. And then we'll continue worshiping psalm. This will be the first five verses of Psalm 32. <laughs> Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no inequity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my inequity. I said, I confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the inequity of my sin. Good morning. Let's pray. Lord, we count it a huge privilege to gather here this morning. Lord, what a sweet time it's been to see new life in Christ, to celebrate that in baptism, to understand more clearly what that means. Lord, to be able to gather together and to worship you in spirit and in truth is a huge privilege that I hope never becomes common to us. I hope we grow in it. and hope you show us more and more what it is to come before uh, the Almighty God. Lord, this morning I want to pray for Trent Brown and Gateway Community Fellowship there in Roy City. Pray for he and his wife Natalie and his two kiddos and pray that you would be um, blessing their time this morning as they gather, as they open the word and, and engage the truths that you would have communicated through the preached word. Lord, I pray for uh, his marriage and I pray that it is sweet and that it is flourishing and that it is putting the gospel on display as uh, Ephesians outlines for us. Lord, I pray for this people this morning. I pray that as we look at our schedules and our time and our plans in such a ridiculously insane time of year, that you would allow us to be honest uh, with ourselves, honest with each other, honest with you, that you would find us as humble diners seated at the table of the king uh, knowing that we could never earn that spot. Lord, we pray that you would guide our time. Pray that it would be all to your glory. Lord, there's nothing good inside of me to be able to communicate anything well. And so we depend completely on the Spirit this morning um, that you may be glorified and that we may respond appropriately uh, with lives that put that glory on display. Lord, we love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've been back for about three weeks from a three-month sabbatical, and uh, I would just like to start by saying sabbaticals are awesome. I wish everyone could get sabbaticals. Um, I've been back for uh, three weeks, and the sabbatical uh, was a three-month period of time where I was given the opportunity by, by this people, by this church, to be able to focus on rest and growth. Uh, it's written into our constitution and bylaws that um, every five years, you, you're in full-time ministry as a full-time staff member here, you get a three-month sabbatical. As I said once, I'll say it before, they are awesome. And uh, it was a blessing. And so I want to thank you specifically for blessing my family. I had some sweet time. I have a wife and two daughters, and we got to just have some incredible time together that was very special. Uh, thank you for what I would call undeserved rest. I don't think I earned that sabbatical, and I'm very, very thankful for that time. Thank you for allowing me uninterrupted time in prayer and study of the word. Thank you for time in growing in being a husband and in being a father. Thank you particularly uh, for those staff and volunteers who shouldered a heavier load so that I could logistically not do what I normally do as a full-time staff member here. Thank you to Ben. I know what it was like when you went on sabbatical, and uh, thank you. Um, to Mark, uh, to Mark Atkinson for not just keeping the worship ministry going, but for growing it and it being even better and being even more God-glorifying dynamics in it upon getting back. I am uh, rested, and I'm eagerly uh, ready for this next season of ministry here at Cross Point. They asked me to share some of what uh, I learned on, on that sabbatical. We took a lot of pictures. I've actually got a 30-minute slideshow that I'd like to show, <laughs> if y'all don't mind. It's very personal. I want y'all to just sit through it. No. Um, <laughs> No, I, I, am, I, I am very thankful. I'm very thankful. All, all jokes aside, I'm very, very thankful and very humbled and um, very rested. And uh, so let's get to it. Turn to Ephesians 1. Early on in my sabbatical, I learned a very unexpected uh, yet very practical lesson. 
Most people say, if I just had more time, I would be better. Just generally, I'd be a better person. If I just had more time, if there weren't so many demands on my schedule, I would be able to do what I needed to do and wanted to do. If I just had more time, my marriage would be better. I'd be a better parent. The house wouldn't be such a mess. My finances wouldn't be such a wreck. My relationships wouldn't be falling apart. If only I had more time. And on sabbatical, I learned that it's not a matter of having more time. It's a matter of what you do with the time we have. It's a huge blessing. And we have a tendency to spend it in all number of crazy directions. But what you do with that time is what makes that difference. Like money, if our time is not attached to a plan, it just goes away. If you're the kind of person who doesn't have like a budget and um, you only know where you are by you do the swipe and cross method where you swipe your card and you cross your fingers to hope that, <laughs> that it, they don't say, sorry, sir. Um, then, then you go to your account balances and you look at it and you say, oh, we've just spent money in so many dumb directions. Oh, we went out to eat like 50 times last week. Why did we do that, you know? And it, it, if it's not attached to a plan, it just goes away. It's the same thing with your time. At the beginning of my sabbatical, my initial thought was, wow, no demands on my schedule. No demands on the schedule. Like, I can't get a text or an email or a phone call that says, this needs to be done at this time, or we need to meet right now, or this needs to happen. Not that I don't like those things. I'm in ministry because I love those things. But it was pretty weird having all demands on the schedule removed. And with all the demands on my schedule removed, I thought, well, being married should be easy. Isn't that what everyone always says? If I just had more time, it'd be easy. Well, I got more time. Being married should be easy. Parenting should be easy. Finances should be easy. Friendships and relationships should be easy. Quickly, quickly, the days began to pass. What about the things we talked about doing as a family? What about those places we wanted to go visit since we actually have the time to go? What about the books we wanted to read? What about the work that needed to get done around the house while we have the extra time? I was soberly, soberly, soberly reminded of Ephesians 5.16, where we are urged to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. You're urged by God and his breathed out word to make the best use of your time because the days are evil. And what was made evident was, if I'm going to do what God wants me to do, I better have a plan, and that plan better be in step with what God has revealed to me in his will. To say it plainly, you cannot make the best use of your time if all you're doing is watching it pass away. So look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 10. We're going to be all over Ephesians and then over in Proverbs later on. But Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10 says this. Here are the plans that God makes for your life as I read these verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Here are all these plans that he makes for his people. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. I want to make it very clear before we move any further in the sermon is that this is not a sermon about time management issues. And this is not a sermon about money management issues. These are worship issues. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's out of the overflow of the heart that you spend the way you do. It's out of the overflow of the heart that your relationships begin to blossom or not blossom in the way they should in a God-glorifying manner. And so these are all worship issues. This isn't a seminar. This is a time of worship for God's people. When God engages us with his truths through the preached word, his aim is our heart. What I mean is that he does not present us with options, but with a two-edged sword of the word that runs us through and demands our very lives. See, in worship, we no longer present a sacrifice. We become a sacrifice, a sacrifice in the likeness of Christ, where our aim is to do what our Father says, just like Jesus did. Ben has explained this in previous sermons. I was listening to the last few sermons this week, 
in preparation for this morning. And it's interesting because this is a sermon that is to equip you for the work of ministry, but it's also a sermon that explains how you use other sermons to use them as resources so that you might walk in a genuine and authentic walk. Ben has explained in this previous sermons that no matter how anybody feels weak, whether it's a good week or a bad week or a hard week, a long week, a short week, week after week after week after week, by the preached word, you're being called to a genuine walk, to be faithful and true to what God calls us to be. You're being reminded that we are a people who sit at the table of the king and feast, and that we sit at the table of the king as a Mephibosheth or a Lazarus. We don't deserve to be there, and yet God gives us this insight. He peels back in Christ for us the mystery of his will, and we're called to respond in a genuine walk. In the last 12 weeks, you've been given a definition of who you are. An accountable people, led and, leadable, led and leadable, taught and teachable, loved and loving, baptized, baptizing, and supping. This is a very important thing in the life of this church. 12 weeks. God chose to use over 20% of your year, 20% of the time that these ministers take, that Ben in particular takes, to prepare these sermons. 20% of the whole year so that you would know who you are. And the reason is, is that who you are defines what you do. And when we get that backwards, it's the difference between worship and idolatry. Who you are in Christ, this kind of people, affects what you do. But sometimes we, we switch that, and we, what we do begins to affect who we are. Well, this is where I work, this is the kind of clothes I wear, this is uh, where I eat meals, whatever. And, and all of a sudden, that begins to define who you are. But God says, no, I would have it that you understand clearly who you are, so that it's clear of what you're supposed to do in your life as a life of worship. Second Peter, you don't have to turn there, but if you take notes, I would encourage you to write it down and turn there later because part of the genuine walk is not just listening and thinking you've done it, but actually walking in it in the coming weeks. Second Peter 1, 5 through 8 explains that we're to walk in what God has revealed. This will mean that our lives reflect, as he explains, faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, self -control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. And what he explains is that those things are um, qualities that through God's revelation are ours, and they're increasing. You hear that? You don't just hear it, and that means you've lived it. It means God reveals things to us, and he gives us these things, and they're ours, and they're increasing. And the warning that he gives in Peter, that Peter gives, is if they're not increasing, there is a possibility that the people of God can hear one sermon after another sermon after another sermon, and they can be ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our God. God's aim is that you are effective and fruitful in the knowledge that he reveals to you. But if those qualities aren't increasing and we're not being really intentional about walking in the truth, the threat given is, or the, the, the reality uh, communicated is that we could become ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our God. Here in Ephesians 1, this is Paul's aim for the church in Ephesus. In this letter, he aims for the church to have clarity and understanding and how they've gotten to where they are. He, he explains it's by grace through faith. It's not by your works. He explains that they've been made children of God, and because of this, we're to live how God aims for us to live, created in Christ Jesus for good works, preserving the gift of unity, putting on the new self, walking in love, rightly representing God in marriage and parenting, and aiming to really just imitate God in all that we do. We're a room full of imitators called to imitate God in every single facet of life. And I want you to look at where Paul starts. He starts with this, verse three, blessed be God. There's no better place to start. You don't start with your schedule. We're gonna get to that in a minute. But start with God, blessed be God, because as image bearers, we cannot bear the image of God if we have no clue as to what that image is. So he starts with God and he explains what God has done. And I want you to look at verses three through six. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is who our God is, and this is what he's been doing from before time existed. Our God is a God of redemption, and if you read through your Old Testament, you'll see this redemptive pattern. As I started reading, I just started making um, notes with the initials GRP, God's redemptive pattern, 
God's redemptive pattern over and over and over again. It starts with Adam and Eve when they decide they're going to play God and do what they think is best. And what does God do? He redeems them. How do they try to redeem themselves? They cover themselves in fig leaves. Fig leaves taken from a vine don't make good clothing. You can try it on your own. They wither and blow away. And God covers them in the skins of, a, of an animal, and he, and, he, and he makes them the way he, he says they need to be. What they did was not enough, so he redeems them. And you see it continue with Israel. Israel, they're redeemed out of Egypt. They're redeemed out of the wilderness. They're redeemed out of the water. Redeemed, redeemed, redeemed over and over again. It's the same with us today that we're redeemed from this worldliness, from the thing, from the culture that surrounds us, and we're made to be image bearers of God. And in Revelation 18, it says at the very end that God's voice is going to be heard in every nation saying, come out of her, my people. You hear the redemption there? Come out of her, my people. So God's redemptive pattern has been going on since before time actually began. God aims to redeem a people who are his own. And our original purpose in creation is that we would be image bearers of God. And then what does he tell them to do? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that the entire earth is filled with human beings created in the likeness of God, aiming to put his character and his plan on display in every single facet of life. We were once only capable of wickedness. And we're now blessed with, what does Ephesians say? Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And we're made able to actually put the glory of the all-glorious God on display in the way that you use your time that he's blessed you with. Hear that. The all-glorious God has made it so that a bunch of losers like us could actually put his glory on display in the time that he's given us with the breath that each of us is using right now that's borrowed. Image bearers. This does not mean we have only some physical likeness to who God must be. It goes way deeper than that. It means that when people look at your life when they look at you, when they look at your marriage, when they look at your children, when they look at your schedule, when they look at your checkbook, they see in these things characteristics that are most true to who God really is. Is that how you're living? Are you using the time that God gave you so that people would look at your character and see the characteristics that are most true to who God really is? Not just you as your individual self, but who God really is. So the question comes up, what are you doing with your time? That's what we're talking about this morning. What are you doing with your time? We're about to have a week where we become more consumers than we've ever been in, in the rest of the year uh, during the Christmas holiday. I'm aware that this week is Christmas. Um, this is a Christmas sermon. Go with it. Um, we are about to have that week, and then we'll have a week where we make these big plans to, to change things. And, and so consider how we use our time. What are you doing with your time? As an image bearer, are you aware that our God is a God who makes plans? Our God makes plans. I think this is really important for us because we're not a church who has a lot of programs. But that doesn't mean that we are anti-plan, anti-structure, anti-order. We're not pro-confusion here. We desire to move in a lean manner in the direction that God would have us move. And our God is a God who makes plans. Remember, we're image bearers. You're seeing how this comes together. Look at those verses 7 through 10. Listen to the plan. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And how did he do this? Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Here the plan, his purpose, which he set forth, he made the plan in Christ, Christ, very important part of this plan, the plan himself, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I want you all to think about that for a minute. Our all-powerful, all-knowing, almighty God is a God who makes plans. I don't know how you would picture God. I want to try and paint a picture for you. But however you would picture God sitting and making plans from before time even existed, go ahead and picture that in your head. He was working on these plans from before time existed. Time itself is a part of God's plans. We refer to those things as like the plan of salvation, or you hear God in Scripture saying, I know the plans I have for you. So as an image bearer, do you have plans to intentionally walk in the truth that God has revealed to us, particularly in these last 12 weeks about who we are? Do your plans reflect the will of God? And do you follow through with them as though you're representing God himself? If you sit and you write some ideas on a sheet of paper and then you lose the sheet within an hour, that's not the kind of plan 
that is being followed through with in a way that truly represents God himself. What are you doing with your time? Most of us are very familiar with the excuse, I don't have enough time. In fact, it's this time of year that we usually begin to use it more and more frequently. Oh, what? It's happening when? We got to get what? I don't have time. I don't have enough time. Uh, It was a bizarre thing to have that excuse taken from my vernacular for three months completely. Like if someone called me during the three months of Adam and said, would you like to go to lunch? I couldn't say, I don't have time. They'd say, you're a liar. You have three months off. You should be able to have time. See, what I have to do in that time is I got to be honest and say, no, I do have the time, but what will I do with it? And really, it's not just a sabbatical thing. It's a life thing. It's a worship thing. I have the time. What will I do with it? For most of us, our problem is not that we need more time, but that we waste too much of it. This is the part of the sermon that's extremely convicting for me because for those first few days of sabbatical, you know what? Guess what I was most drawn to do for like the first three days? Just guess. Just watch TV. Yeah. I just like, oh, nothing to do. Don't really need to check email. I'm going to leave the phone on silent. Click, click. Look at all these channels and and shows and stuff. Well, all of a sudden, I'm all interested in someone's life, of the, the dynamics of a relationship of people who I will never meet. The rebuilding of a car that I will never drive. The, the reconstruction of this dream house that I'll never live in. And I just got to see what happens. I did it last night. I, somehow I got into some movie on the Hallmark Channel. Oh, <laughs> this is such a time of confession. And we're like going to eat dinner, and I'm thinking about what I'm preaching on today. And Lindsay's like, what are you doing? I was like, I just, the lady, she just wants to take care of the kids. And, and they're staying, I, I hope the police don't take them away ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But the truth is, is that we waste way too much time. Look at Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We spend entirely too much time walking in other things, not the good works prepared for us. I'm the one standing up here confessing, but everyone has their junk. Everyone has their big time wasters that we just want to hold on to for no good reason at all. And when the question is asked why you're not being faithful to do what God has revealed, we just shrug our shoulders and we sheepishly say, I don't have enough time. Think about that phrase, I don't have enough time. Who are you really blaming? Think about it. Who are you really blaming when you say, I don't have enough time? Maybe the creator of time. Who's that? Okay. Who are we really blaming? When we say, I don't have enough time, you're looking at the creator of time and you're saying, hey, you didn't do your job. You didn't make enough. I got more stuff to do. And you didn't make enough, creator of time. And really, in light of Ephesians 1, here's what we're really saying. God, Jesus is not enough. I'm going to need more time. It should be sobering. We find ourselves groaning and complaining about the impossibilities of life as though we have been called to something we're actually unable to achieve. As though even though we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in all wisdom and all insight, lavishly heaped upon our sorry selves, God peeling back the mystery of his will, as though that's not enough, and we are still ill-equipped, and we're going to need more time. I'll make this point shortly. For many of us, we need to change our excuse to a bold statement. Rather than saying, I don't have enough time, a lot of us need to say, I don't have enough time for that. Like in light of this plan that God has revealed to us and lavished upon us in all wisdom and all insight, in light of this, I don't have enough time for that, whatever that might be for you. I'll share an example. The average American watches four and a half hours of TV a day. That's the average. Some watch more, some watch less. I'm not condemning you. I'm just sharing the facts. The result is 12 years of TV in the course of a lifetime, the average lifetime. 12 years of getting all worked up with people you're never going to meet and situations that aren't even real. It's like not even, it's just, it makes its own, it's, oh, the layers are insane. But it's not even real. 12 years that we are spent in the direction of something that just doesn't even matter. Now, this isn't a sermon about TV's the devil. 
But in light of God's plan, some of us need to be able to say, I don't have time for that. And that might be something different for you. A plan shows a desire to flourish in life, not just to exist and not just to react. A plan shows a desire to flourish. Um, Four and a half hours of TV a day, 12 years of TV watching in a lifetime. This guy, Neil Postman, he, he wrote in a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's a really good book. It'll make you want to throw away all electronic devices and, and you know, uh, renounce those things. But uh, it's a very good book, and it gives a lot of insight. And he, he shared this comment that I thought was appropriate in light of we are a supping people, a people who sit at the table of the king undeservedly, and we feast like a Mephibosheth and a Lazarus. And he said this, Television keeps us in constant communion with the world. Television keeps us in constant communion with the world. It can be anything. It can be golf. It can be fishing. It can be hunting. It can be shopping. Be careful what you say, Scott. Um, But it it can be anything. But is there something else keeping you in constant communion with the world? Consider that statement in the context of this last week's sermon. We're a supping people, and you can't sit at two tables. My first attempt at a sermon title was this, and I was told it was too long for the bulletin. I know the plans that I have for you, plans to sit in front of your big TV and complain about being ill-equipped to do what I've called you to do. How ridiculous is that? To think that God says, I know the plans I have for you, and to think what we may do, even knowing that he's made plans for our lives. See, what's the point? It's imperative that we rightly represent God. That's what your life is for. If you're not representing God... You're living outside of your created purpose. Scripture says we're ambassadors. What does an ambassador do? An ambassador no longer speaks on his own behalf. He speaks on behalf of the king. An ambassador no longer just does whatever the heck he wants to do. He does what has been told him to do by order of the king. We're ambassadors. Look at Ephesians 5.1, just to make sure it's really clear. Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children. It's really clear who we're supposed to imitate in that verse, isn't it? Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. John Stott makes a comment, it is inconceivable that we should enjoy a relationship with God as his children without accepting the obligation to imitate our father and cultivate the family likeness. What he's simply saying is, you're a member of the family of the king And that king is someone who you get to call father because of Jesus. And it is inconceivable that you would live in a way that doesn't represent who he is. Inconceivable. See, God's aim, I mentioned this earlier, and I'll mention it again. God's aim is to give us perspective. He's not a God of confusion. See, if if your life is this thing where you wake up in the morning and you you just begin kind of wigging out immediately... Where it's this, oh my goodness, this can't, oh, I'm just reacting. Oh, I can't believe this. I got to get this done. Oh no, this thing blew up. And it's just this madness all the time. Be reminded that God is not a God of confusion. And his aim is to give us perspective. We can have plans in life that are plans to flourish, not just react and not just exist. If we're going to imitate God, we must make plans. And when in doing so, we got to make them the way that he did. So look at verse 4 in Ephesians 1 told you we'd be all over Ephesians. We'll go to Proverbs in a minute. I want to make my plan, and I want to make it the way that God makes it, because I'm called to imitate God, because I get to be a part of his family because of Jesus. And Ephesians 1, 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Again, picture that. God is timeless. This is probably the most important point this morning, so hang on to it. God is timeless. He exists outside of time. So before God existed, God diligently made plans according to his purpose. It's my world. It's my creation. It's my plans. And I will make them as they fit to my purpose. And he reveals those things to us in this breathed out word. But before time began, you see God making those plans. And then what does he do? Then after he made his plans, he created time. Hear that. God made his plans, then he created time. Plans, then time. Plans, then time. Hear God saying, this is my plan, and time, is, which is a part of my plan, is the dimension in which my plans will be carried out according to my purpose. 
plans than time. So what are we going to do if we're imitating our creator? If we're imitating our creator, we will listen to his truths, we will make our plans, and then we will go to our schedules. Hear that clearly. If we're going to be imitators of God, we will listen to him, we will make our plans, and then we go to the schedule. Plans, then time, as imitators of God. One of our greatest faults in making plans is that we go to our schedules first, and they already look like they're full. Seriously, is anybody sitting in here on the week before Christmas in December saying, no, my schedule's pretty wide open. I'm just kind of waiting for God to tell me what to do. No, if you were to go to your schedule first, it's already full. Then we make the inconceivable excuse that we do not have time to carry out the plan that God has revealed. Think about that. Creator of time, you didn't make enough, so I'm not doing the plan. Schedule's full. We do the same thing with our finances, don't we? We look at our account balances and we say, it is just not possible to carry through with that plan, God. I'm sorry. The horrible result is that we begin to live outside of our created purpose. Your schedules, your checkbooks, your marriages, your parenting, friendships should all point to the glory of God. Plans, then time. Plans, then order. Plans, then structure. Plans, then checkbook. Do what God says. They should all be true to God's character as represented in your character as your character is observed by others. We're called to be a reflection of God to the culture, not the culture back to God. I've heard that example given. It's a good example. If you were like a mirror, you don't want to be, go to God and worship and be a reflection of the culture and just look like everything that's going on in the world. You're supposed to be reflecting God to that culture as image bearers, putting his glory on display. The difference is that one is worship and one is idolatry. So what's the big point? Make the adjustments to your schedule, not God's plan. Let us not forget he's God. If we say, uh, no, that's not going to work, he's God. Make the adjustment to the schedule or the checkbook or the order or the structure or the business plan or whatever it is, not God's plan. In 2 Corinthians, Paul makes this huge statement, and we've been talking about it as a staff because we want to minister to this people rightly, robustly, flourishing in it. And Paul says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. That's what he says. That's a person who says, God, what do you want me to do? I will most gladly do that. I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Could you imagine that same guy saying, oop, but not Tuesday. Sorry. Fridays are out before five. Um, It's not going to work. Can you imagine that? I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. We're a people who hear the preached word. We look at our lives and we make plans to change and to adjust and to tweak our lives so that we are spending and being spent in the right direction. Change your schedule, not God's plan. You need not be run by a schedule that God gives you every liberty in Christ to change. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. To be run by a schedule that God says, not only am I allowing you to change it, but I'm telling you, this is my plan. I I may be commanding you and demanding you to change it if it doesn't fit with the plan. Something interesting happened in the 1300s. The clock was invented. Imagine what life would be like without any clocks. That's pretty weird to think about. As I'm sitting here preaching, I have a clock on my wrist, and I have the one that is front and center for us to know not to preach too long. And the big one in the back. And with the invention of the clock, we started hearing the ticking of the seconds, right? You hear it. You can hear it. You can hear it. If you're doing work in your office and it's real quiet, sometimes you can, that clock reminds you, oh, there goes another second, there goes another second, there goes another second. As I talk about the invention of the clock for a moment, I want to make sure it's very clear. This is not a sermon about efficiency. We're not an efficient people. The change that has to take place is a change in our hearts, The essence of ministry is inefficiency. You may have the same conversation 10 times in one week. God says, good job, keep it up. If I tell you to do it again next week, you need to do it. We're not an efficient people. So this isn't about efficiency. So in the 1300s, the invention of the clock. Time before the clock existed very much in light of eternity. So what people would generally say is, this needs to get done. This thing here needs to get done. And if it takes a day, it takes a day. 
If it takes a week, it takes a week. But that doesn't change the fact that this thing needs to get done. But then with the invention of the clock, rather than seeing time in light of eternity, what we begin to see is time in light of seconds and minutes and hours. And Postman, in his book that I mentioned earlier, makes this observation. The clock turned us into timekeepers. First, timekeepers. Whereas you're doing what you do and you're spending and being spent, you're making sure that you're not keeping track of the time wrongly. You're you're keeping that time because you can hear it now. And then he says it turned us into timekeepers, but then it turned us into time savers because you realized it was so very hard to keep the time. So then you turn into time savers. And then the third step that he says inevitably happens is you turn into time servers where you go from timekeeper to time saver to time server. And the reason I share that with y'all is not that we would all throw our clocks away, but that we would consider many of us tend to serve time first and then God. If we are a people who go to our schedule first and then say, okay, God's plan, mm, it's not going to fit. Sorry, we're serving time first and then God. For people who do the same thing with our checkbooks, we're serving that first and then God. We will use our time more wisely when we understand why it was created. First, that it was created, and then why it was created. So I think it's clear we're to make plans according to God's will. But what else does God share with us about being spent, spending and being spent in the right direction? Turn over to Proverbs. Proverbs 16.3. We'll jump around in Proverbs. If you want to jump, bring it on. If not, just write it down in your notes and go back to it as you seek to be genuine in your walk during the week. Before I share these Proverbs, I want to kind of give us a warning that um, Proverbs are intensely practical. And a lot of times we can hear them and go, oh, that's cute. I'll have to remember to tell that to someone when they're having a bad day. And that's like all we do with Proverbs. Like, for instance, an example of a proverb, not one in here, is an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, great, but that doesn't actually make you eat apples every day. What we're doing here as we look at Proverbs is don't look at them as like a cute and quippy saying that's intensely practical yet cute more than anything. Look at them in light of 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is breathed out by God. Anyone who ever penned anything that is included in this did so with a breath that was borrowed from God. And so all of this scripture is breathed out by God. And verse 17 in 2 Timothy 3 says that The point is that the man of God would be equipped for every good work. So as we look at these Proverbs, don't go cute, be equipped. Proverbs 16, 3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. What does that mean? That means you don't just make a plan and presto, problem solved. It means that you consider God's will, you listen, then you make a plan, and then you commit that plan to God. And he will establish it as he sees fit. What's that going to mean? It means he may approve. He may disapprove. He may tweak the plan. He may tell you to wait a little while longer. Or he may give you more realistic insight as to how long it actually is going to take. When I make plans to do anything around the house, that's the one I get the most. Say, okay, God, here's our plan. Here's what we're going to do. It's going to happen this week. He's like, you're a bonehead. That's going to take a month and a half. But you commit your work to the Lord, and he establishes the plan as he sees fit. Look at Proverbs 19.21. We begin to understand why. Let's we look at this verse. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Do you hear that? That doesn't mean you have a lot of plans and God only has a few. It means we're flawed and he's not. So many are the plans in the mind of a man, but what will stand is the purpose of the Lord. You will make some plans that God tells you to abandon because it's not what's best. Are you okay with that? I don't like that, but Scripture says I'm supposed to be okay with that, that I may actually sit and work through a plan and that God will say that's not what's best because it's only his purposes that will stand. A friend of mine one time told me he felt like God was laughing at his spreadsheet. Um, Some of you will make a spreadsheet. You'll open up Excel and you'll make your spreadsheet and you'll have all of your your actual income and your needs and your savings and your investments and the percentages on the investments and how they will, the return on the investment over this time and then over this time and then over this time. And if you actually hit print on that spreadsheet, it would print out 8,000 pages because it's so detailed and it's so right there. And organization and structure is good. 
But as my friend said, he thought God was laughing at his spreadsheet. This is not a reason not to plan, that God will tell you to abandon some things that you think were right. It's a reason to stay submissive to God throughout all of your planning. Stay submissive. Sometimes when we begin to be planners, and we're like, hey, I got a plan, I'm good. Look, I got a color-coded schedule. How about that? Hey, my checkbook is balanced. How about that? We begin to think that we're just going, and we don't really maybe need God as much. Stay submissive throughout the entire plan. And be okay with God saying things like, surprise, you're pregnant. Or, surprise, you're going to lose your job. Or, surprise, I'm giving you a raise. What are you going to do with that? Or, surprise, your parents are sick and you're entering into a season of life that's totally backwards and you're going to be spent in a very different direction. God may surprise us in a number of ways, but be submissive to him. As you make plans, he will establish what his purpose is for you in every single facet of life. He does not forsake us. He does not turn his back on us. He, he equips us and he gives us clarity in how to spend and be spent. Look at Proverbs 15, 22. I'm going to read 1522 and 2018 back to back. You can write them down in your notes. You don't have to turn to both. It says, without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. Plans are established by counsel. By wise guidance, wage war. When you think of waging war, think of that phrase, I don't have time for that. That's the war we're waging against the things that get in the way of what God's plan is for us. And how do we do that? By wise counsel, That's, see, that means plan in community. Make your plan, first, make plans. Second, here, make those plans the way God makes them and make them in community. God gives us each other to walk together and to actually be a part of each other's lives and we should value that. What that means is you may be a great planner. You may be very good at what you do. You may be a, a guy who has a color-coded schedule on, on his computer and he can change it from his phone and it syncs up and it's really organized. You may be a mom who has the, the big thing on the wall in the kitchen that tells what the, each kid is doing at every hour, and you may be very good at that. You may be just a smart person. You, frankly, you may just have a very high IQ, and God tells you to make your plans in community. It's never as good as it would be if you're doing it by yourself, but he, may, he says to make them in community. The only way to fight the good fight is in community. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-three. <clears throat> And 21.5, these are the last two I'll read. 27.23 and 21.5 says this. Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. For riches do not last forever. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes to poverty. Be diligent in your plan. See, here gathered, we are a people who believe in a sovereign God. I believe what Ephesians 1 says. I believe that God was making these plans before the earth even existed, before time even existed. And I believe in the sovereignty of God. But do not use God's sovereignty as an excuse for your laziness. Do not say, oh, well, pff, he was making the plans before time began. What, what's the point in me sharing the gospel with anyone? Well, part of his plan was that you do so. Part of his plan was that you are diligent. Part of his plan is that you go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. Part of his plan is that you walk in the things that you've heard so that you're not ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord. So do not use God's sovereignty as an excuse for laziness. He's going to do what he's going to do. Well, maybe he wants you to get off your tail and work hard and be diligent. Consider that diligence here is contrasted with haste. In this context, to be hasty can be a form of laziness. Why? Well, because you just want to blast in there and take care of the problem quickly. All right, yeah, our finances are a mess. Let's make a, let's make a budget. It didn't really change anything. Remember, this is a worship issue, and the aim of God and with his two-edged sword is your heart. And so haste can be a sign of laziness because what's missing? Well, there's no endurance. There's no steadfastness. There's no perseverance to the end for as long as it takes for the plan to be carried out. Interestingly, diligence is indicative of a person who shows great care. A diligent person shows great conscientiousness. A diligent person is careful and persistent. Remember that um, none of us will finish our process of sanctification before our life is over. Remember that as I'm talking about diligence. That means that a lot of the plans that God has for us will take course over years 
maybe decades, but be diligent and stick to it and trust God throughout the whole thing. For most of us, um, that's the way the plans will come. A new spreadsheet doesn't fix your financial problems. The issue is worship and your heart must be changed. A new schedule doesn't fix your mismanagement of time. The issue is worship and your heart must be changed. God calls us to seasons of rest, not a life of rest. I needed to know that coming out of a three-month sabbatical. But God only calls you to seasons of rest, not a life of rest. We should, we should be okay with that because that says that we'll be diligent when God calls us to that. And when he gives us rest, we'll actually cherish it. I've explained in uh, one of the deals before, the kind of person who goes on vacation and they can't enjoy it because they know it'll be over in seven days. You're just sitting there like, oh man, this vacation's going to be over in like 132 hours, you know, that kind of thing. He gives us seasons of, of rest, and we should make the most of those. And coming out of the, the sabbatical, that was a joy for me to know. Because these last three weeks have not been a season of rest at all. It's been the opposite, and it's been great. But the season of rest equipped me for that. But we're called to be diligent. And in fact, even the rest that he mentions is a rest that, as Ben has made clear, we must strive to enter. I'll share an example of a guy that I talked to a few weeks ago. He was a guy who was in a job that... Um, was taking too much of his time away from his family. His friendships weren't being cultivated in the right manner. And his faith was just kind of this Sunday morning sliver of an hour. And he was managing 80 accounts. And now he's managing 10 accounts. Now that transition from 80 accounts to 10 accounts, if any one of you is any, has any business savviness at all, uh, you don't do that overnight. You don't send out an email, moving to 10 accounts from 80. Thank you. Sign the management, you know. Um, 80 accounts to 10 accounts, for him it took a three-year transition. Three years. He had to be diligent. He had to trust God in that. But it was what he knew was right for him to be genuine and authentic in his walk. You may be tens of thousands of dollars in debt, and you see no way out. You may work a job that requires too much of your time, and you see no way out. And I would encourage you with James 1. If any of you lacks wisdom... Ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. It goes on to explain that when you ask God for wisdom and he gives you wisdom, he doesn't give it to you sparingly. He gives it to you abundantly. And as children of God, we should cling to those promises. Ben and I were talking this morning about how it's interesting at the time that this is falling because of um, it's the new year. It's a, it's a time of new beginnings. Everyone in here woke up to mercies that were new this morning to enable you to walk in authenticity and, and genuineness so that God's glory would be reflected in your life. Uh, we have New Year's resolutions that we'll make. We're making some transitions as a church in January that I'll explain here in a second. But it's sweet to know that if we're just in a position where it's like, I, I hear what you're saying, but you, what you're saying, it doesn't change my schedule. No, it doesn't. But God gives you wisdom, and he will give it to you abundantly to do what is needed to be done for his glory. So I want to close our time by taking a few seconds to explain some of the plans that we, Crosspoint, have made. And I want to explain these plans because we've made them in hopes that we will, we will be genuine and authentic in our walk, putting God's glory on display, and that we would be equipping you to do the same thing, and that you would know them so that you could tell others so they can do the same thing. And the earth is filled with God. It's glory being put on display through people. You see, it's a cool cycle. It's vicious. So I'm going to take a few seconds to talk about it. Um, this isn't everything, but you need to know these. Um, one of the things when you're making plans is to make use of good resources. And when you know how a resource works, you can make better use of it. It's like a hammer. If you didn't know that you could pull nails out with it as well, you're not going to make the best use of that tool. Um, these are some tools. One thing is we're working on our communication. We're working on our communication. Over the last few years, we've observed some holes in our communication, and we aim to patch them so that it makes it much harder for members of this body to say, oh, I didn't know that, or when did that happen, or what? We want it to be clear, and we're working on that communication. Led by elders, we are currently equipping a staff, a body of deacons, and a number of small group shepherds who have a very sound grasp on who we are and what we're doing, and they're regularly communicating what we're doing in response to the word, why we're doing that, and they can be there to answer questions. The second thing is we have a schedule. We have an online schedule that's very detailed that you can actually, with a click of a button, you can sync it to your schedule on your computer. How many of you knew about our online schedule that's very detailed? That's why I mentioned communication first, because <laughs> you need to know that. The schedule's important. Why? 
You need to be aware of what we're doing as a response to the preaching of God's word. That's what drives this people. We don't just sit in a planning session and say, what do you think? What do you think? I don't, oh, that'd be cute. Let's do that. No, it's what did, what did God reveal to us through the preached word and how will we be driven by that and pushed by that and moved by that to be obedient in our responses? So the schedule is indicative of that, not just our cute ideas. You need to know who will be leading, who is available to answer questions that may come up as we walk together. You need to be able to know the plans that we have so you can be authentic in your walk. We have uh, Google group emails. We have a Crosspoint Facebook page. We have bulletins. We may even eventually have a newsletter a bi-weekly newsletter probably. The third thing is the most important thing. We have small groups. A large portion of our body made the transition to small groups in the fall, and we aim for the remainder of our body to transition in January. What that means is that by the end of January, we will have 11 small groups. Currently we have nine, we'll be adding two in January. And by the end of January, we'll have 11 small groups meeting on different nights of the week all over the county, led by 22 shepherds and co-shepherds who've been equipped to lead those groups and are being equipped regularly to lead those groups. These groups are made up of entire families, kids and all, who gather weekly to talk through the preached word, which Peter calls the imperishable seed. These families spend time preserving the unity that they have in Christ. They pray for each other. They help each other with relationships and with marriage, with parenting, with school decisions, with finances, with friendships. It's like real life engaging each other. It's beautiful. They hold each other accountable to walk with authenticity in the response to what God has called us to, to what he's revealed about the mystery of his will in Christ. We're called to be members of one another, and there is no room for lone rangers. You've heard it a lot from this pulpit. It's not ideal for you to sup at this table, the table of the king, anonymously. Small groups are our response to God revealing how his people are to live daily. And on a side note, when we started talking about small groups and maybe moving away from just the Sunday morning Bible study only, but to having these small groups that meet everywhere, most of the people that we were first talking to about leading, who many of them are leading these groups now, you know what they said? I don't have time. Ironic, isn't it? Go talk to him now. Go talk to him now. Because what I'm hearing is not, man, we've been doing these for three months and I still don't have time. What I'm hearing is that was the call for us to be authentic in our walk and I would drop just about anything on my schedule to make sure I don't miss that this week. Or I hear talk about, oh man, it was so sweet. The other night at our small group, we got, and you, you couldn't tell whose parents were whose kids because all the kids were sitting in this person's lap and it was just beautiful and it was, it was family. It was a big family. Those are the kinds of testimonials we're hearing. In January, we'll have some uh, small group video testimonials that we'll be sharing so you can hear firsthand how God is moving and what he's doing in these things. Our elders are approachable. You may have heard that before. Hear it again. Our elders are approachable. Those serving in ministry are equipped, and they're being equipped. And our aim is to make sure that there is no question as to how you are cared for as members of this flock. We want to make sure there's no question as to how you've been equipped for the work of ministry that God calls you to. We want to be able to stand with Paul and say, I will most gladly spend and be spent on the souls of this people. We want there to be no question about that. In a moment, we're going to together partake of the Lord's Supper. It's a victory meal. I urge you to repent of those areas in your life that you're not willing to adjust so that you might walk in obedience to God. Those areas where you're saying, I'd rather change God's plan than my structure and schedule. And if you have no intention of making the necessary adjustments in your life to put God's glory on display unconditionally, then we would ask you not to take the supper, but rather spend that time praying that God would give you insight and wisdom into the changes that he desires for you to make, just like we heard in James. Pray that he'll give you wisdom and know that he gives it abundantly if you ask faithfully. Let's pray. Lord, your ways are higher than our ways, and if we're going to submit to what you would have us submit to, uh, we're going to need to be a people who make plans. We're going to need to be a people who make them the way you make them, who hear the plan first and then put it to play in our lives, no matter what needs to be dropped, no matter what needs to be shifted, no matter what needs to be adjusted or tweaked or changed, so that we might do all we can to put your glory on display so that when people look at our character, they see a character that is true to who God really is. 
so that when we have these plans and we're carrying through with them, that we would do so with diligence as though we are representing you. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Christ because what you've shown us this morning in Ephesians is that it is Christ who is the plan for the fullness of time. That's what we celebrate this year as, as we're entering this week of Christmas time and there's so much going on. What we're celebrating is that you made plans before the world began and in Christ, the fullness of the plan comes to fruition and in Christ, we have your will the, the mystery of your will peeled back so that we can see it and you lavish upon us in all wisdom and insight the ability to walk in the knowledge of the Lord. Lord, you are mighty and we are common and fragile vessels and we're completely dependent upon you and the work of the Spirit to help us to walk in truth and to be authentic and genuine. We thank you for Jesus and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And when the hour came... When the time came, Jesus reclined at a table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you that I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And when he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Lord, we give you thanks for the time. That there was a time, that time came, the hour came, and you broke the bread and passed it around. And God, we are amazed that you allow us to sit at this table today and make time for this. We love you, Father. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. We're about to take our offertory and um, our offering and uh, just have a, a thought for you and a, something to share with you before we take that. This morning's message was really asking a hard question, who's your God? Your watch? Your schedule book? A calendar? Your checkbook? Arithmetic? When you give, I'm going to tell you what, I, there's never been a time in our lives when, when giving wasn't something where you're kind of looking at, well, here's what we could do with that. But then you give it to God and God multiplies the rest of it. He owns math. Just like he owns time. When you look at something like, I can't I don't have time to devote to that. I know it's God's plan, but you do it. And then you look at the rest of your time and it's multiplied somehow. Whether he rearranges your priorities or whether he just stretches the rest of your time. I don't know what he does, but it's amazing. It's faith building. You see people nod their head when you talk about giving in this way. They're nodding their head. Notice they're not me and they're not on the church staff. It's not some sort of scheme. It's just faith and it's greatness and it's worship. Offerings are worship. This offering that we're doing right now... Uh, it is giving to the Lord, but I also want to let you know something we're doing this time of year that's a little bit different from past years is in keeping with this passage. As long as we have opportunity to do good to everyone, especially to those who are the household of faith, we have people within this body that are going to have a slim Christmas. Our people within this body that have auto repairs issues that they can't tackle. We thought we had somebody within this body that needed a $3,000 washer and dryer, and turns out it was a $300 washer dryer. So you may have gotten that email, but it's a weird conversion to 10 gay, you know, different. You have to look up what that denomination is in um, currency, but God has already met that need. But there are needs within this body. There are single parents, they're young families. 
there are singles. I mean, there's all kind of situations in this body. I encourage you to be mindful of that. Give to the Lord this morning as an act of worship. And also, if you'd like to participate in what we're calling a Christmas love offering, then write that on the memo line. Just write Christmas love offering and make it out to Crosspoint Fellowship and give that in worship. Give that as an act of worship. Just know that whoever receives it, all they can do is thank God. They don't know who gave it to them. It's appropriate. Let's worship in giving. Don't forget the uh, Christmas Eve service, 6 o'clock here at the church building. And um, you all have a great week. Father, thank you so much for the time you've allowed us to be here and hear this this morning. Thank you for the families that we have. We praise you, God, and are so grateful for Ann this morning and new faith expressed and what you've done this morning in her life and what you've said and what she said as she's called out to you in her baptism. I pray that she wouldn't forget it and that you'd help us and the Green family remind her what that is and what that was this morning when she stepped into those waters. We thank you for faith that you've given us, and uh, we just pray, God, that this week we will make adjustments based on what you say and what you do, and that we would strive to live that way, uh, even though it's difficult. And um, God, we're so thankful for the meal we've enjoyed and what that means, and uh, we pray that you would give us the grace to be obedient this week. In Christ's name, amen.